Good morning, Grace Valley. My name is Phil. I bring you greetings from your sister church, New City. It is good to be with you, and it is good to hear what God is doing among you and with you and in you. So uh, it's a privilege to be with you this morning. As we look uh, at the cusp of this new year, 2022, as we look at Psalm 139, a psalm that is precious and beloved to many of us. So um, unsolved mysteries fascinate us. No matter the time or place, we want to solve riddles. I've been reading a detective novel lately, and it got me thinking about just how popular crime shows and uh, detective novels have become in in our era, in our world. Why do mystery movies and crime thrillers attract us so much? The release and reboot of true mystery shows has been nonstop in our era of Netflix entertainment. Shows like CSI and Law and Order and Elementary and so on, they fascinate us. Why is that? We're looking for justice. We're looking for resolution. We're looking especially for insight into the tangled web of what motivates a person like you and I to act the way they do. We are pulled in by the drama of it all. What goes on inside the deepest recesses of a person's heart and mind, sometimes with tragic consequences, not just in this life, but in the next. My question to us this morning is, what could be a deeper mystery than the human heart? In Psalm 139, David recognizes this with awestruck wonder, but also, as we will see, with a tinge of frustration, even wanting to hide from God. As he reflects in the first two stanzas on in the first stanza on God's knowledge of him, he becomes aware that even his own heart is a mystery to him, though it is completely known to God. Perhaps you feel this way this morning. Um, <laughs> but the news of the psalm is that there is one person in the universe who knows you and I right well, our Maker Redeemer, Jesus knows you right well. And his insight and understanding into us surpasses all our understanding. That's why the psalm begins with the familiar verse, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. My thoughts, my soul, my body even, my whole life, says the psalm, is of incredible value to God and is deeply known to him. This is a beloved uh, psalm for many of us, but I think sometimes it is possible to come away with it, partly because it's been uh, familiar to us and sentimentalized on, you know, um, Hallmark birthday cards and on um, mugs and t-shirts. It's possible to come away thinking that this psalm is about us. But as we've just sung, it actually turns out that this psalm is meant for us to go away from it and say, wow. This God is worthy, and it is amazing, incredible that he cares for me and knows me that well. It turns out, in fact, that God is the detective pursuing our hearts. He is the one who has been attentive to the details of our lives and aware of our secrets and our innermost thoughts and habits more than we might think. He is the Sherlock Holmes, if you will, who is after us. He holds the greatest insight. And that's why in verse 6, David says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. And as we stand on the cusp of 2022, I would like for us to just look at this carefully and see what the Lord is saying to us. 
The psalm divides itself neatly into four stanzas. Uh, we'll begin uh, in, in the first stanza, verses 1 to 6. I invite you to have your Bibles open or the um, app, if you have a Bible app with you, and just follow along with me as we take our clues from the text. The first thing is my thoughts matter to the all-seeing God. What kind of knowledge is David talking about in the first few verses? What kind of searching is he talking about when he says God is looking into his life? In the first few verses, David's focus is on God's knowledge of our patterns of life, our personal habits, my sitting down, my standing up, our innermost thoughts. You understand my thoughts from far away, he says. Our travels, our activities, your work, your vocations, what's important to you, what you spend your time doing. All of these ways of yours and mine are familiar and known to him. Not just the good, but also the bad and the ugly. The ESV says he is acquainted with all my ways. He doesn't just know about them. He is acquainted with them. Even the very unique you, the way you speak, the way you carry yourself, the private dialogue that goes on in your mind, he knows, Jesus knows all about it. God sees it all. The emphasis in this stanza is, if you will, the life of your mind, um, the will, the executive center of who you are. We come away from these verses with a sense that God's knowledge is also deeply personal. The psalmist isn't, the psalmist isn't awestruck because, um, you know, people's general thoughts uh, are known to God, but because his particular private thoughts are known to God and that they matter to him. You and I can't even know ourselves that well. But God knows our very interior thoughts. They are laid bare in his presence. That kind of knowledge, I think, is the kind of knowledge and interest that a father takes in his child or a mother in her child. It's not aloof. It's not distant. It's actually attentive and careful. It's like you, when you listen to your son tell you something really special to him, and you stop, you force yourself to stop. That's the kind of attentiveness our father has that he talks about in these verses. But not only that, it's also a knowledge that involves wisdom and even discipline. He says in verse 5 that he's aware that sometimes God encircles him. He says uh, in, in other verses, it says, I am hemmed in behind and before. As if God in his kindness sometimes restrains him so he doesn't get too far. I get the picture of a life jacket. You know, you're kind of snug. I see my little children in the summer, they're, they're snug in their life, life jacket, but it's there to protect them. I get that picture of what the Lord is doing when he squeezes us in for our protection. It's as though we're unfolded, completely held by God. You lay your hand upon me, he says. Now, if you've read scripture for some time, you know that this is true. The writer of Hebrews echoes the sense of God's active knowledge and involvement with each of us. He says that none of us and nothing in us is hidden from God's sight, but everything is naked and exposed to the eyes of Jesus. He is the one to whom we must give account, says Hebrews chapter 4. Some of us are also familiar with the old prayer that says, Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, no secrets are hidden. There might be secrets in your life and your heart today. Jesus knows them. 
Let's be honest with ourselves, though. What kind of reaction do you have when you hear these words? What kind of reaction do I have when I reflect on that kind of all-seeing knowledge? It's likely that that gives you a sense of exposure that makes you feel deeply insecure. I know it does for me. And our impulse might be to hide and escape. And that's what happens in verses 7 to 12 in the second stanza. He talks about escaping from God's Spirit. My second point is that my soul matters to the all-present God. You see, if we're honest with ourselves, that's the response that is default to our sinful selves. Our souls want to run from God. Flight. That's the response that's familiar to us when we discover that the all-seeing, omniscient God knows us that well. It's instinctive to urge and flee from God like Adam and Eve did when they betrayed their maker in the garden. Maybe you see that in your own children. Children, you're here. Maybe you see that when you know you've done something wrong and you just want to hide. We dread, we dread having such penetrating, all-gazing eyes look upon us, don't we? Perhaps lately, in, in, as we've been going into this new year, you've laid in your bed and you've been thinking your own private thoughts or maybe with your wife or a friend on what you're pursuing this year. What are you after? Well, the psalmist is very honest here. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And commentators agree that he's not just being rhetorical and dramatic here to emphasize God's omnipresence. No, this stanza is about how we're reacting. And David says that wherever he might flee, he realizes that God would be there with him, even in the highest height, the deepest depth, the farthest you can go, east or west, literally to the end of the sea, literally in the Jewish mind, the edge of the world. Wherever you and I go, you are, he, he is there. He says, God is there. I'm an airline pilot, so I get to appreciate vast distances on a regular basis. And these verses just really catch me. That God, you can't outrun him. He is everywhere. David realizes that God is in fact in pursuit of him. That God created him for this beckoning, calling him for this, even though he's running away. You might be running away this morning. But God's love is patiently and persistently pursuing you. That is the gospel, isn't it? That Jesus has come down in pursuit of you and I. We might think that we can stop that persistent voice of truth and kindness and love drawing us to repentance, the spirit of the living God addressing us, but friend, you can't outrun him. Jonah tried and he couldn't. I couldn't. Derek Kidner describes this as God's long arm of love. Your soul matters to him. Not just your thoughts, but the inner you. Even the darkest places of your soul, he says, the places of sin and shame, of rebellion and brokenness, of resistance, of autonomy. I'll take care of this, God. Thank you very much. Even that matters to him. It's his long arm of love after you. At times past, I've felt myself far too gone. And verses 11 to 12 speak to me when he says, Surely the darkness will hide me, and the light around me be 
dark, but then he responds and he says, but even the darkness is not dark to you. Your light shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. I don't think he's talking here about physical darkness. I think he's talking about moral and spiritual darkness. Even the darkness is not dark to you. He says, God can penetrate your darkness this morning. The darkness that haunts you, the the darkness that leaves you in despair. That's what he's talking about. The Bible describes Jesus as the light of men and women. In John chapter 1, verse 4. On our own, there is deep darkness. Prophet Jeremiah says, The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Martin Luther says that sin fundamentally is us turning in on ourselves, being curved in on ourselves, our souls trying to hide away and shrink from God's pervasive presence. But the good news that we just celebrated in Christmas is that the light of life, Jesus Christ, says John chapter 1, has come into our world. And the good news is, not only has he come and entered our darkness, but in John chapter 1 verse 5, he says that he overcame it. He overcame the darkness. He moved in to our humanity, became a human being, and he lived in the physical and spiritual neighborhood of our humanity. He got right in there. And John says in that precious chapter 1, he says that he entered our darkness and overcame it. That's good news, friends. No matter where you are today, no matter what darkness that you feel you're in today or that you're surrounded by today, Jesus can overcome it. And that's why we're invited to meet him this morning again. And if we walk with him, he can make us conquerors too. Inspired by the psalm, um, a poet named Francis Thompson uh, wrote a poem taking his cues from this psalm, and he called it the hound of heaven because he recognized that it turns out that it is God who has been pursuing us persistently, running after us. And I think that we need that reminder today. The hound of heaven hasn't given up on you. He is pursuing you and I today. You are of great value to him. Your soul matters to the all-present God. Third, my body matters to the all-creative God, verses 13 to 18. This stanza is perhaps the most well-known and beloved to us, and rightly so. It brings together and carries forward the first two stanzas. God not only knew and saw the invisible, my own thoughts matter to him, and not only is he present with me in what I think is inaccessible, right, the darkness, no matter how far I run away, but now we go into the depths, if you will, what he calls my inward parts, the deepest parts, the human body. In Hebrew, it's the same language he's using here that's used in Exodus to describe the delicate artistic embroidery of the tabernacle that's being made in Exodus 26. There's only one you. Your body is made in a special and unique way. Researchers say that if the genetic code of one cell from your body was written out, its sequence would be entirely unique, and it would take 500 large books at least to spell them out. You see, we've been designed right down to the DNA level to love and serve our maker. Your body has the unique stamp and imprint of your maker on it. Yes, your body. This is amazing that the God who made you and I 
made us into whole beings, not just our spirits and our souls, but our bodies too, designed to glorify him and enjoy him forever. You knit me together in my mother's womb, he says, in the invisible place. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. The point is that our bodies were made by him and for him, and they matter to him. Our bodies, your body, is not incidental to who you are. You see, in our culture, I think we make the mistake, and historically, there's two mistakes. One is to just deny our bodies, kind of ignore them. Really, the only thing that matters is your head or what's going on inside. And I think in our culture, we've gone the other extreme, where we now make so much out of our bodies that your body, the way you look, defines you. End of story, period. But that is not true. That is not true. You are so much more than that. I've struggled with this for, 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 for some time. Um, in fact, one of the things that kept me from becoming an airline pilot was is that I am a person of short stature. I thought, I can't walk into a flight school and apply for this. Honestly. And over the last few years, as I've begun to embrace the way that God has made me, I've been freed. Freed into not worrying about who I am in terms of my body and what I look like, but into being and functioning the way that God has made me to be. There is great freedom in realizing that God made your body, my body, on purpose. It gives us great freedom and liberation to take our eyes off ourselves and to praise and serve us, serve our Redeemer. I, I love the way the CSB puts it. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Remarkably, wondrously made. ESV says fearfully and wonderfully made. Amazing. Your works are wonderful. And I know this very well. Do you know that today? And this stanza ends with heartfelt praise to the all-creative God, his incredible thoughts towards him. He says, God, how precious are your thoughts to me? How vast is the sum of them? If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I am still with you. He looks at his life and he says, from waking to sleeping, from womb to tomb, from conscious existence, life to death, from my infancy, through my teenage years, through all the stuff that happens to your body in old age, God will sustain nourish and uphold me. There's a sense here that he knows that even past this life, he's going to look upon God in his presence. When I wake, I will be with you. As you and I look upon our lives, we can recognize that we have been uniquely made by our all-creative, omnipotent God. and That includes our bodies. Now we come to the part uh, that... uh, we might be tempted to skip the part that doesn't make it on the t-shirts and the mugs. Verses 19 to 24 that were read for us earlier. These words can feel like a blast of cold air when we come to them, but they're really important because they tell us that our circumstances matter to the all-holy God. You see, the psalmist hasn't so far been dreaming. He hasn't been in a flight of fancy, just dreaming stuff about mystical thoughts about God. These verses are grounded in a real historical reality, in the concrete circumstances of the psalmist. Scholars have wrestled with whether it was David who wrote the psalm or whether it was written in his namesake by a psalmist who 
maybe lived during the Babylonian exile in a time of great suffering for God's people. But regardless, the psalmist knows that evil and oppression and suffering are real. And he's experienced them himself. If the psalmist of Psalm 139 hadn't been feeling assaulted with malicious intent and surrounded by people who hate God, we would not have this psalm at all. We too have raw thoughts and feelings about justice, about what we think God should do on our behalf or for those who are hurting or marginalized around us. And the psalmist is just as honest here. He brings his raw feelings and circumstances to the Lord. As was read for us by Keith, if only God would kill the wicked. If only you, God, would kill the wicked. If only you would keep bloodthirsty men away from me. Oh God, if only you would do that. Raw, heartfelt prayer. The second thing to recognize is he has taken a personal costly stance against evil here. The easy thing for him to do would be to cozy up to evil to adapt himself to a lukewarm spirituality. Why? Because he's so serious about God. Or to adapt himself to the culture around him and live in the way of the wicked that's described in Psalm 1. If it was in the time of the Babylonians, he could adapt himself in the time of exile to their beliefs and idols and culture and comforts and forsake his faith in the God who made him and loves him and pursues him. Instead, he is jealous for God and his honor, isn't he? We get that sense from these verses. These verses remind us at the cusp of a new year that worldliness and spiritual evil are real. They require a response from us that is serious, a response of separation and resistance, a spiritual resistance, but a real resistance. The psalmist is actually amazed at the patience of God in withholding his judgment and his justice over sinners. It's what the psalmist hates, the sin that's manifested in real persons that ruins and hurts people's lives. That's what he hates. That's what Psalm 1, if you'll remember, at the very beginning of the Psalter is about, right? He is saying no to walking in the way of wicked people and yes to walking in the way of the Lord. And David is bringing those circumstances to God in prayer. Will you do that this morning? What's on your mind? What's weighing heavily on you? He brings that, the circumstances, and he realizes that that matters to his holy God, and he just brings that to prayer, in prayer to God. You don't need to come with all your ducks in a row this morning. You can come with God's people. You can come like the psalmist with raw, sometimes ugly emotions, and bring them to him. And this all lands us in the final two beautiful verses of 23 and 24. He didn't start Psalm 139 with these two verses. Remember, at the beginning of the psalm, he just confessed his awareness that God knows his thoughts. Oh Lord, you have searched me and know me. That God has been present in his life. But look where he lands at the end. He turns this into prayer. He turns this into prayer. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. Perhaps when he came to these last two verses, he was reminded of his own sinfulness and vulnerability and his need for God's holiness to cleanse and purify him. And so he prays one of the most important and marvelous prayers of the Bible. Maybe it's a prayer you and I can learn to pray this year. 
maybe even on a daily basis. Search me, O God. Search me, Jesus, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me into the everlasting way. What he is really saying and what we should also say is that, God, I don't want just head knowledge about you. Lord, you have searched me and known me. I want you to go through my life with a fine tooth comb. I trust you and I know that by your mercy you can cleanse me and wash me and clean me from all my iniquities. Doesn't he say in 1 John that Jesus is faithful and just? to forgive us all our unrighteousness, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and to forgive us all our sins. He says, come, you know my innermost self, my anxious thoughts, my concerns, my circumstances, what I'm going through right now. I want you to expose in me, in your mercy, the dark areas of my life, the offensive ways that are in me. Heal me, Lord. Heal me. Lead me in the way of Jesus, the ancient way, the everlasting way. Lead me home. That's his prayer. Perhaps you're a Christian today, but you don't realize, but you realize that you haven't fully opened yourself in all these years to Jesus. Maybe you've prayed some of these prayers, but really deep down, you haven't really opened yourself up. You haven't really confided to him with your anxious thoughts and concerns. You haven't allowed his light to shine in your darkness. Do you know Jesus is better at saving than you are at sinning? Jesus is able to conquer the darkness. Come and just open yourself up to him this morning. Pray this prayer today. God, I want you to know my heart. One writer in reflecting on this psalm says, there is much in us that remains unevangelized. There are areas in our lives, even if you've been walking with the Lord for years, there are areas in the Lord that have not been evangelized. The gospel hasn't gotten in there. The good news of Jesus has not gotten in there and transformed you. Make this the year that you go deeper with Jesus, that you go farther up and further in with him. My wife shared this quote with me yesterday as I was reflecting on this passage. I came across her social media stream, and I thought I would share it with you in this time where people make resolutions for the new year. Instead of resolving to do better, be smaller, eat cleaner, or work harder, resolve to know that you are known. You are loved by the God of all creation, the God of your salvation, who made your body, ordered your days, gave you seasons, and sees your hopes for 2022. If this is the first time you pray such a prayer, you can only pray this prayer this morning through Jesus Christ. Nobody else can know you this way, and nobody can open the way for you and shine his light in your life the way Jesus can. So if you don't know him yet, you can only pray this prayer this morning by coming to Jesus. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. It's impossible. So if you don't know Jesus this morning, Come and pray this deepest of prayers, this most transforming of prayers. Ask somebody today and say, I want to meet Jesus who knows me so well. Who else can search your heart, which is even a mystery to yourself, but Jesus Christ who is God is greater than our hearts. Let's come to him in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much that you know us so well. We thank you that as we read the psalm, we come away with hope, not with despair. 
We thank you that, Jesus, you are able to save sinners like us and to rescue us out of darkness, that you transfer us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. Would you come today and give us hope? Give us faith in a, work where there, in a world where there is so much darkness and despair that tries to get into our souls. And give us the hope of Jesus Christ. And help us to open ourselves up to you today, maybe even for the first time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we have uh, time for a few questions. I've got my phone here. Um, so feel free to, do, to just stand up and ask, or uh, there's a few moments here if you want to send a quick text. You can also do that, or you can also send it later. All right. Thanks. Oh, there's one here. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think he is most concerned with the sin that Sure, yeah, I'll repeat the question. So in verse 19, um you're saying that he is obviously committing a sin. That he is that his prayer is expressing hatred towards somebody made in God's image. Is that pretty much what you're saying? And and, and so maybe that's a thing that he needs to ask God for forgiveness for. And that's what he does when he says, search me, uh, oh God, I know my heart. I, I don't want us to be too quick to dismiss the hatred in those verses. I know it's very strong, um, very offensive language to our modern ears. But I think that there is a place for a God-centered hatred of sin. A kind of jealousy for the Lord and a kind of understanding of spiritual warfare, a kind of understanding of the reality of evil and suffering in our world that doesn't direct that hatred towards the sinner, but towards the sin. I think of Paul's words um, in, in, I think, um, well, in one of his letters where he says that the weapons of our warfare are not earthly, but are spiritual to fight, uh, to fight the powers and the principalities. That's what comes to mind when I read these verses, that that there is a good kind, of a, health, a healthy kind of spirit-led gut hatred towards sin. And I think sometimes in our modern world, it's actually easy to dismiss that, even as Christians. Um, but I think holiness would, would, would require us to really reckon with evil, the evil in our own lives, but also the evil that's out there, and, and not, not hate people. I don't think that's the message we're supposed to take away, but to hate the sin that destroys so much. Hope that helps.